You can hear me now? Is that good? Yeah, I don't want to overwhelm anybody, although that's never really happened (laughs) in my life. (laughs) But there's a first time for everything, right? So you can see by the colors here that this message is a little bit hot. And uh, it's a deep topic. And uh, there's a lot to be said here. So the good news this morning is after a lot of hard work, I've whittled the message down to an hour and a half. I mean a half an hour. So that I got your heart rate going here. Pastor Andy, uh, you did well by mentioning your Money Matter series. Because as I got into that study, which was just excellent, by the way, Uh, The message today connects with that excellent teaching by Pastor Andy in the sermon series, Money Matters. One of the teachings you'll recall from that series came from the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5, which states that covetousness is idolatry. And I remember hearing it more than once during the series, and I also remember thinking, hey, you know what, I agree with that. And I bet you readily agreed with that too. Some of us even were so bold as to say, amen, (laughs) in public. But here's the question. Did we get the core teaching or not? Did we get the core teaching or not? Because the reason I ask is, it's fairly easy for us to see how covetousness is a form of idolatry. We can academically grasp that, and we can see that, and we can recognize it, that is, we recognize it, when we see it in other people. But the core teaching, do we recognize it in ourselves? Do we recognize it in ourselves? And to connect more directly uh, with today's teaching, covetousness is only one form of idolatry. There are hundreds or thousands of others. So we have to then ask, do we realize all the idolatrous tendencies that may be hampering our own personal walk with the Lord? Our master text for this teaching comes from the letter of 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. That's the last verse. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, as is our custom. Here at uh, Blessed Life Fellowship, let's all stand and honor God in the reading of his word. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And so, noticeably, that didn't take very long. And... Uh, The reason that I didn't want it to take longer or look for a longer master text on this topic is to make an impression. 1 John is hailed as a letter of love and light. So the question is, why did he end it so abruptly? And why with a warning against idols? That's because John was wanting to make an impression. These six words postured at the very end where he put them, encapsulate one of the biggest, if not the biggest problem of all of humanity. A problem that manifests in the Garden of Eden. A problem 
defined as by me as latching on to things that harm us and at the same time dishonor our maker. Idolatry. Old Testament scholar by the name of Christopher Wright, he's a missiologist, that is someone who not only is a missionary but studies the missionary um, work. And he has been all over the world. His name's Christopher Wright. He's been all over the world serving the gospel and ministering to God's people. Sadly, after all that experience, he observes, and I quote, Idolatry is the biggest single obstacle to world mission. Idolatry. Adding, and I quote, here in the United States of America, idolatry is rampant among God's own people in the church. I believe him. I have no reason not to, but I do have some reasons for believing him. If false prophets are wolves in sheep's clothing, then surely idolatry is the fox in the hen house. So this topic demands our focus and our attention. I hope you're convinced. What did John mean? I know this is a funny title, right? What did John mean um, when he uses the word idols? Well, that's, the reason people ask is since John abruptly ends this letter this way, and catch this, because the word idol only occurs one time in the entire letter, only once, Jewish and Christian scholars have debated, no kidding, there's a debate been going on for 2,000 years, what did John mean when he wrote the word idols? So curious to see what all that fuss was about, I studied it. I studied the Greek word for idols, and then I reread the entire letter of 1 John, and I read it again and studied the word for idols, and after all that, I arrived at this. John, what John meant by idols, idols as used by John, means idols. <laughs> I solved a 2,000-year-old problem in 30 minutes. But more to the point to elaborate a little bit more, and some of you will recognize these words from the sermon series recently, but we'll elaborate and expound on that a little bit more as we go. What did John mean by idols? John meant idols. He also meant anything you allow to compete for God's place in your heart. And you'll find these on your bulletin. These are the first bulletin points today. If you're filling in the blanks, you'll find them there. These are the first few they're highlighted for you on the screen in yellow. But more to the point, honing in, what John meant by idols is a word cosmos. And that is a Greek word which means more precisely the world, which is not really the planet per se that God created, although it is, but it's really more speaking to the world system or the world order, or the government, or the constitution of human beings. That is what John meant when he used the word idols. So, 
I put the following slide together as a visual aid to demonstrate how quickly we can put an end to a senseless debate like this one over what John might have meant with a plain word that he wrote on a plain piece of paper. Starting with the meaning of the Greek term eidolon, which is the word he wrote, that means an image, a likeness, a substitute, or a fake. One dictionary that I consulted actually used the word cheap, as in cheap substitute. That's what idols means. Little children, keep yourself from fakes. But because it's the last verse, let's see what he had to say in the next to the last verse, because surely those two thoughts should be connected. So what did he say? He said, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from cheap substitutes. Does that not make sense? What's well, a nice ending to a letter, isn't it? I think so as well. And you just add a little color, and you can see it all pops right in front of your eyes. Some of you don't like to uh, highlight. I'm a highlighter marker and note taker and, and all of that because it helps me. I need the visual aid. And so uh, just add a little color there, and you can see the point, um, I think, pretty clearly that I was hoping to make here with this slide. All right, um, well, idolatry is a big deal, and we can see over and over in the Bible that idolatry is extremely subtle, so subtle that it almost defies a dictionary definition. However, what's important is that we recognize it, no matter how we define it. We recognize it before it latches onto us and drags us to a place that we, w we don't want to be. Well, we will recognize it by its fruit. So New Testament professor Gregory Beale depicts idol worship as revering anything other than God. And upon a very careful reflection, I believe he's right, but, but stated in this way, I don't think this is very helpful. Pastor Andy Robbins, I find his characterization of idolatry to be more helpful. This was taken from Money Matters, October 30th. Pastor Andy Robbins says, Idolatry is anything that tries to take the place of God in terms of worship, devotion, and security. This depiction comes closer to the heart of the matter and is more helpful to me personally and probably to you as well. What is very interesting is that uh, finally we see that the New Living Translation translators are on the same wavelength with our pastor. They translate 1 John 5.21 like this. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And I find 
all three of those to be accurate and correct, all three to be needful for clarification. But I still will not use the word definition, but recognition, because there's probably a lot more to idolatry that I can't perceive. And that is the danger and the reason for John's warning. But we can recognize it. Praise God, he didn't leave us uh, floundering about. All right, so, still, the challenge is here. And this, I'm sharing with you what I read um, in a school that I attend, Liberty University. We have um, a course in this subject that came up in the Old Testament. So I'm sharing what I've been reading. And as it connects here, the challenge and all the talk out there is that, well, 1 John is the letter of love, not the letter of idols. Well, okay, that is absolutely and positively true about it being a letter of love. Keeping count of words, the word agape, the word that we translate as love, appears 24 times in a book with only five chapters. 24 times in a book with five chapters. That is the highest concentration of the word love for any book in the Bible. It's a book about love, guaranteed. But the word idol only appears one time, and that is also absolutely and positively true. But now, as Paul Harvey was noted for saying, here is the rest of the story. The word cosmos appears 22 times in this little letter of five chapters. The highest concentration of the use of the word world for any book in the Bible. Do you see a contrast? Love, 24 times high concentration. Cosmos, 22 times highest concentration. John was trying to accomplish something. He was giving us a message. So let's look at Cosmos. Cosmos, according to the New Testament definition, the dictionaries, you know, there's the dictionary definition of a word, and then there's the word, the way that we actually use it, right? Okay, and so in that time period, when the word cosmos was written in what's called a Greco-Roman thought, that word meant the universe, which is what God made, and rightly so. That word meant the human government, or the world order of the day, and it means earthly goods, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc. Notice I'm using quotes because I got these right out of the book. Things that stir desire and seduce from God and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. Doesn't that sound like Pastor Andy's quote-unquote definition of idolatry? But his was the definition of idolatry. This is the definition of cosmos. I can assure you for John, the word cosmos is the playing field for idols. That's what John meant when he wrote, keep yourself from idols. He meant keep yourself from the world or from the world order. Stand out. That's what we're supposed to do. 
We're supposed to be distinct from the world order, not blend in with the world order. Little children, keep yourselves unstained, unblemished by the world system and the stench that you see and experience all around you. And while we're keeping count, this was free, this next part, and I have no additional charge. John uses the word light five times and the word darkness five times. John uses a variation of truth or true 11 times and a combination of lie, liar, and deceive 11 times, all in the same book. All in the same book. So, you see John's strategy for getting us to appreciate the goodness and the pureness of God is to expose the darkness of depravity of the cosmos. The only thing good, let me go back one. Look again at what he's trying to do. He's trying to make the light shine by contrasting it against a dark backdrop. I'm trying to make it something, a dark backdrop. But the only thing good about the former person that I was, that dark backdrop made a platform for the good that's come through me in Jesus Christ for other people to compare to. If you knew me, you'd know exactly what I was talking about. And some of you date back that far with me. If we say anything good about Brent, it has to be mentioned in the context of Jesus Christ. Because when Brent tried to be good as Brent, he was dark and he was worldly. And I think the same thing would apply to each and every one of us. We need something to compare the goodness to in order to appreciate just how good it truly is. All right. So, <clears throat> moving on. I got you a little teaser there. You saw Keith Moore got excited and then I took him away. Now keep in mind, he's not an idol, all right? So if that was the effect it had on you, you need to calm down. All right. So here's an example. Let's take a little snippet out of 1 John. All of the times he uses the word world, it's, look at this, just two verses over here on the left. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone love the world, and the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That prompted Keith Moore to this. Loving the world is a replacement for loving God. And he used that quote during a message and teaching on this scripture that you see here from 1 John. In a different teaching by Pastor Moore about 10 or 15 years ago, he notes the connection between these verses in 1 John about the world and the, tempta the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, which you have side by side for the, on the screen. It's best seen, and I hope you do this at home, 
we see this, get two Bibles, lay them side by side, open for comparison. So, if we lay them out side by side, and I mentioned I like to do some colorizing, technicolor, or shading, or whatever you say, Pastor Moore connected these, and rightly so. Watch this right before your eyes. First, John said, all the things in the world, the desires of the flesh. And Genesis said that when the woman saw the tree was good for food. That's a comparison. First John, John said that the desire of the eyes are a warning sign for us. And look what happened to Eve. She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And this again is coming from Brother Moore, who got it from the Word of God. First John says that the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And what did Eve see? She saw that it was good for food, delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. Which one? Her. That one. That's the one she was concerned about. Herself. The pride of her own life. And the pride of our own lives. That's the comparison in the excellent teaching um, that Brother Moore brought on this subject. So, here it is for you, all colorized. I'm sorry if you're listening on the recording and don't see the slide, but I've highlighted the word world, which occurs five times, and I've highlighted the three nearly parallel phrases between 1 John in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So, whether by counting the words, or as we saw by comparing um, the passage with original sin, we understand that John was teaching that the world order that you walk through when you leave here today, that place is the minefield of idolatry, and that we must pay careful attention where we step. Well, thank goodness we got all these stories about golden calves and so forth, right? So we're not about to make a golden calf or bow down to a dead doll, <laughs> right? Yeah? Oh, but you know what? It might be a little bit more subtle than that. Because if Satan could take a piece of fruit and turn it into an idol as he did with Eve, then maybe we all best beware. No one. I repeat, no one is exempt from temptation of any kind, especially the temptation toward idolatry. And we can blame it all on the devil if we want to. That's what Eve did. But the Bible teaches that we have another issue, and that issue is a heart issue of our own. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's the handle that the devil will use to drag you all over the place. Yeah, he will do it if you give him the handle. Check your heart. You're born with a heart problem, and the only answer is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, 
It's more subtle than we may think. But we may have good intentions. You know, we may love God, seriously, love God. We want to please Him. But we have to do it His way and not our way. But still, we say, we're not so blind as to make a golden calf. Or are we? No one is, a, no one is exempt from temptation. In the golden calf incident that took place in the book of Exodus, I want to go there for a bit. I don't have to retell the story. It's pretty, pretty famous. But in that, I propose to you that the men and women of the Exodus, the Israelites, were not as dense as they seemed to be. They were not as dense as they were seduced. So here's the example. Aaron, for example, was Moses' brother and evangelistic partner. The Lord, look, you can look it up, Exodus 4.27, Exodus 6.13. The Lord spoke directly to Aaron well before this calf thing happened. They had a one-on-one -on -one relationship, Aaron and the Lord, talking together. Bible depicts them having a conversation. All the Israelites, all of them, were led by a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day, and it said when the sea parted in front of them, the book of Hebrews says that the Israelites crossed over by faith. They were sold on God. Then they saw the smoke and the fire of Sinai, and they heard what appeared to be a trumpet at the, at the sound of God descending on a mountain. So we ask ourselves, how could such a thing as a golden calf have happened? So I challenge us to think, they weren't as dense as they were seduced. And one explanation that I want to share with you today is found in what's called the Targum and the Midrash. The Targum and the Midrash. Those are ancient Aramaic notes that are written in the margin of the Old Testament Bible by the ancient priests and scribes and rabbis. You could think of that, they're not scripture, but you could think of that somewhat like your study Bible. Only, these notes were written by men who were much closer to the scene, both culturally and chronologically. So here's the notes that are written in the Targum concerning the calf debacle of the book of Exodus. When Aaron was producing the calf idol, Satan entered it, and the likeness of this calf came out of it, just like Aaron said. We put the gold in the fire, and it shaped itself into a calf. That's what the Targum says. That's what actually happened, according to these scribes. Samuel, Satan, entered it. This is while they were making it now. This is while they were producing the calf idol. The Targum says that Satan entered it and he was lowing like a cow in the fire as a calf. Started moaning and misled Israel. They made a doll for a demon. In addition... The Targum also said that Satan was portrayed in the middle of the idol. Imagine this, a stiff object 
hobbling, walking, and eventually lifting and jumping. But that's what the Targum said, that he was jumping before the people in the idol who likewise began to sport in front of it, and they finally did the thing, they bowed down before it. They bowed down before it. So what happened? Well, in the Ten Commandments, in the book of Exodus chapter 20, God gave one single commandment that prohibited two kinds of adultery. One commandment. One, you shall have no other God. That's a demon. You shall not. There is no other. You shall not go after another. The second part of the commandment is a stipulation that you will not make an image of any kind, even if it's to represent Yahweh, the real God. No image. That's an insult to God. They're trying to make an image to bow down to. God is above creation. There's nothing in creation that adequately represents God. So it's an insult to his glory to try to make an image to represent him. Yet this is what many people propose happened at Sinai. That the people were making an image of Yahweh so they could have something they could bow down to because they were afraid of the mountain and the thunder and the lightning. They wanted to bring God to them their way, not his way. You know, an entire generation of people idolized Elvis Presley, and they adored the song, I did it my way. The Israelites starting off wanting to please God, that's what I'm convinced of. They started off wanting to please God, but they wanted to please him their way. They paid a terrible price. By doing it their way instead of God's way, they ended up letting the enemy inside God's camp. And I think the same thing can happen to us. The same thing can happen to us. We can let the enemy inside Christ's camp among the people of God today, the people who go by his name. No one is above temptation. The temptation of maybe prioritizing your career or your hobbies or your desire for, your, for attention or desire for approval in the world ahead of God. Then there's this one. Pastor worship. I'm glad to say I don't see that here. We love you, Pastor. But we only worship our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, as you teach us. Thank you. But in recent history, we have seen many dynamic and polished preachers. And they come on the scene either locally or nationally. But who is checking their credentials? I'm a prophet. And I'm charismatic. Who's checking credentials here? Some of these men and women are so charismatic that there is a tendency to what can only be described as pastor worship. And Samantha and I have seen something like this with our own eyes, and it is scary. Paul battled a similar situation in Corinth. This is, here's on the screen here, 2 Corinthians um, Chapter 11, verse 3 through 6, Paul battling this pastor worship. He says, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, you get the connection here, right? 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus that one we, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you, you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it. He doesn't say that you, you, you believe it. You put up with it. That's bad enough. Because if you put up with it, the people around you might think it's okay to believe it. And you are not doing anything for your stand and your witness for Christ in the world. But he says you put it up. He says, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, all right, so maybe not so polished, but not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain, made it plain, notice these, made this plain to you in all things. We don't have to muddle and pollute it. When John said idols, he meant idols. There doesn't have to be a 2,000-year raging debate over a plain word on a piece of paper unless you don't want it to mean what it's supposed to mean. And that's tampering with the Word of God. And that's what these super apostles were doing. Then there's this one, supersize me. (laughs) Supersize me. There is nothing inherently wrong with a megachurch and with a mega pastor. There are actually some that are biblical and doing the work of God in such a wonderful way and in such great numbers. There are, but not very many. So there is nothing inherently wrong with the megachurch or the mega pastor, but sadly, supersize too often leads to compromise. Supersize often leads to compromise. It leads to compromise with the world values, with the world's trendiness. It means a compromise with the pure and unadulterated word of God. Just look at your Sunday TV and you'll know what I'm talking about. The members of these mega churches and even the mega pastors end up blending in with the world rather than standing in contrast out as the light of the world. Our pastor here of 50 or so of us souls at Blessed Life Fellowship is not in the least inferior to any mega pastor that I'm aware of. He draws all the water from the well and we count ourselves highly blessed and favored for the privilege to sit under the full word of God. And I think that deserves a hand clap for our Lord God for giving us the leadership of God. All right. Finally. I've got to beat my own brow uh, here. It was, uh, it's been a little tough. What do you think? It has been a tough one so far. But you know what? I'm tired of talking about the problem. But it's necessary for helping us to avoid. And it's also because thoroughly exposing a problem helps us to thoroughly appreciate the solution. Praise God there's a way. 
and his name is Jesus Christ. You'll find the word daily on your bulletin as a blank. These are daily practices for victory over idolatry. Now we're going to focus on the solution. Praise God. Expose the three C's of conflict, compromise, and competition. Test yourself. Where am I in conflict? What am I competing for? What am I compromising? Check those. Then counter yourself with a reliance, reliance on repentance, a repentant lifestyle, renewal, a refreshing of the Spirit, and a reflection of God in your life. Daily practices for victory over idolatry. We have victory. You knew that, right? It's not all, it's not all sour grapes. We have victory. All right. Daily practices for victory over idolatry expose daily the three C's of idolatry, which these are in your bulletin as the blanks as well. Conflict, compromise, and con competition between what? Between God's word and your own desires. Between God's word and the world. Between God's word and anything. If there's a conflict, a compromise, or a competition going on in your heart, there's an idol somewhere lurking nearby. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse, um, verses 1 through 7, with the story of Eve, um, ultimately we come to realize in the story that Eve's temptation was not so much the idol of the fruit, but as it was her own self. That's evidenced by her sense of entitlement and her struggle for independence or her desire for independence. Her unwillingness to consult first her God and second her partner, Adam, her unwillingness to consult them in the matter shows her desire for her independence from them. And her reaching for the forbidden fruit reveals her sense of entitlement. Blame the devil if you want. You too may be undergoing these internal conflicts. But we must keep in mind that we are made by God's design. We are made for relationship. And what we do ultimately affects someone else, often everyone else. That's the clear teaching in the Bible and the body of Christ. We are all connected to one another. We all serve the Lord, but we're all connected to one another. And what we do affects the whole body. Or what we don't do affects the whole body. And when it comes to entitlement, James says, he says, don't be deceived. He said, every good gift is from above. So no matter what our emotions tell us, we're not entitled to anything. But we owe everything to God. And maybe that will help us when we feel like, well, I should get something or other. How about your next breath and your next heartbeat? Praise you, Lord God, and thank you, Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, don't worry, I'm not going to read it. I don't think I need to. It's Ananias and Sapphira, and you remember the story. The church was really getting going. People were 
selling everything they had and they were laying it at the apostles' feet and joining the church in record numbers. It was a wonderful startup for the church. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted the approval of everybody else. So they sold what they had, but they kept half, but then tried to pass it off as the whole caboodle. And you know what happened to them? By holding back on half of the account, they exposed their idol of mammon, which is evidenced by their fear of the world. To idolize mammon is connected with your fear that God won't take care of you, but the world will. Ladies and gentlemen, that is upside down. Upside down thinking. So holding back half on account of fear, half trusting, means half committed. They were prepared to buy their way back into the world order when the going got tough, if the going got tough. They didn't want to burn their bridge back to the cosmos. Hear Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, where you're going to sleep, where you live, what kind of car you're going to drive, if you're going to have a car or not. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you, and you all are evidence of that scripture here today. Thank you, Lord. Second Corinthians, we already visited the super pastor, the super apostle, and the challenge there as fitting into the world by, even if we have to tweak the word a little bit, you know, a little adjust the carburetor a little bit, and we're all going the same way. That's not how it works. It's God's way or no way. God's way or no way. And then this one, this is your challenge from the Word of God today. I'd like for you, if you get, I really, no matter what, no conditions, today, if you can, but soon, read these temptations of Jesus again. Luke chapter 4. And look for the competition, the conflict, and the compromise tools that Satan pulls out of the bag on Jesus. Now we're going to look at what Jesus does to defeat those here in just a bit. Daily practices for victory over idolatry. And this, I think, is that last section in your bulletin that has some blanks you might want to pencil in here. Daily practices for victory over idolatry are to rely daily on the three R's of relationship. That is repentance, renewal, and reflection. And the scriptures that we'll be using are listed there on the screen. They are 2 Corinthians 7.10, Psalm 51 for repentance and renewal, and for reflecting we'll look at Jeremiah 2, 1 Corinthians 10, and again... We will look at Luke um, 4. Victory over idolatry through repentance and renewal. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly sorrow, or godly grief, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly, cosmu, Grief 
produces death. You know, the temptation to idolatry is stalking you day and night. It lurks at every corner. But Paul gives some very good news for anyone who gets caught up in the trap and cries out for God's help. Godly grief, godly sorrow, the uh-oh moment, that is good news for you because that produces a repentance and that will pull you out of the quicksand of idolatry. But the worldly kind of grief, oh, I wish I hadn't done that because now so-and-so thinks I'm an idiot, that kind of grief leads you to death. And you have heard the expression, they grieved themselves to death. Not in front of God you don't, but in front of the world you will. All right. Victory over idolatry through repentance and renewal. Psalm 51. What does godly sorrow look like? Last slide, we talked about godly sorrow. What does godly sorrow look like? David, King David, perhaps better than anyone else, demonstrates godly sorrow in Psalm 51, where he pours out his heart to God over the idolatrous act of adultery. Notice the words, the idolatrous act of adultery. His love for God and his trust in God's forgiveness was so strong that he laid out his repentance for the whole world to see. He put his humility and this humiliating experience on display for all generations, and we've been reading and talking about it for 3,000 years. That's how much he loved and trusted God. Are we any better? You know, the Bible makes it clear that idolatry of any kind is spiritual adultery. That is a spiritual adultery in the sight of God. And so we're in the same boat with David. No one has a right to be smug concerning David's failure. Nor should we get caught up in worldly sorrow for what we've done. But bless the Lord that godly sorrow turns into genuine repentance. And what godly sorrow looks like, it looks like Psalm 51, where David takes a heart that's broken in two and lays it on the altar of God. And you'll notice I'm getting a bit emotional. And I talked to the pastor about it, and he said, let it happen, whatever the Lord, uh, his will. And so, pastor, that's, I'll try not to put up too much of a battle in my pride. But I have to tell you, you know, the deeper I got into this study, the study on idolatry, and the Lord, the Lord <clears throat> began to open my eyes to my compromises, compromises and conflicts, not the ones from 10 years ago, the ones from 10 days ago. <laughs> He opened my eyes to that, and I found, I found myself on bent knees with tears, not just the quiet kind, the boo-hooing kind, and I found myself that way 
on more than one occasion. And these same words that you see on the screen, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Those same words, they came pouring from my lips because they were written into my heart. In truth, today's message should and probably does or will have the same effect on you. But when you get real with God and you lay it all out before him in repentance like David, you come up off those knees, renewed, refilled, and reflecting the glory of God once again, all to the glory of God himself. Thank you, Lord. Oh, how God loves us. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow, whether I deserve it or not. Thank you, Jesus. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God. You will not despise. Every heart that is genuinely broken for God will be healed by God. And the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we ought to not just be thankful, but we ought to be excited. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from ourselves. And thank you, Jesus, for making a way out with your body and your blood and your perfect obedience to God, our Father. Reflecting God's glory in yours, Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah says, My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You know, God's glory is your glory. And why is that? Because when God made them male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. He put his glory in you so that you could broadcast his glory to the world. His glory is your glory. And the ancients taught the prophets like Jeremiah that when we exchanged our glory for a lie. That is what they called idolatry. You have changed your glory for something that profits not. So we see that Jeremiah, all the chapter 2, is a harrowing account of Israel's idolatry. Gregory Beale, remarking on that chapter, says that we reflect what we revere. And that's absolutely the truth. If we revere and love God, we will not be able to contain it. And it will be evident 
for everyone to see. But if we want to mingle love of God with love of the world, I've already told you how easy it is to spot idolatry in somebody else. I think we'd all be wise to think of our own self in that context. Genesis shows one scenario, but the Gospels show another scenario, and that is overcoming by reflecting the glory of God, but only because Jesus showed us the way. All right, so... 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is uh, what I'm talking about in this context of the New Testament. When we're tempted to idolatry, he says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but also will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee to where? Flee to where? There's a way of escape. His name is Jesus Christ. Flee to where? Flee from idolatry. I heard, flee to the cross. Flee to the word of God. Whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's where we flee to. That's the escape route. Reflecting God's glory leaves no room for the darkness of idolatry and tempting you in your life. If you are full, renewed, and refreshed, and reflecting of God's glory, then praise God, that's our way out. But we have to want it. And as we've talked about several times, we have to do it His way. Nobody got into heaven and said, I did it my way. All right. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Our Lord Jesus didn't leave us to figure things out on our own. He didn't want us to, nor require that we do it with our own wit, will, or our own intellect. Folks, we just, we ain't that smart. Jesus came and he showed us, by example, what to do. He set a plain and simple pattern. And I'm returning back to Luke chapter 4. Challenge again to read this today, and you'll see the three C's, but I challenge you when you read it again, you see Jesus overcome with the three R's. He had already been filled. He's reflecting God. But we look at it this way. Jesus overcome those temptations. And I've made this cute little string of words that begin with the letter F to show a different way of reflecting and renewal. Jesus went into the temptation fasting. He emptied himself of himself. What can be tempted when there's nothing there? Fasting is a way to get there. I'm sure the pastor probably will have something to say about that come January. Perhaps. Or before. before. Jesus went into it filling. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And finally, 
Jesus overcome the devil by feasting. Didn't care about bread. He was feasting on the word of his father. And that, my friends, is the pattern that we can follow and we will be successful every time. Thank you, Jesus. So we took some time um, exposing the problem, but we can only experience victory by staying focused on our solution. So we know from experience that what you see on the screen in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We know from experience that this world serves us up all kinds of trouble, but Jesus is above it all. Jesus has overcome it all, and Jesus is the answer and the solution to every problem the human race has ever known. So I would like to end in this with today, in this teaching, with a few uh, lines also from the Apostle John. He was in the world, and, was, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, I hope you got something out of that today. Pastor, thank you once again for the privilege of speaking to your flock, God's people here this morning. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Brent. Praise God. That was awesome. Thank you, Lord. And you know, that does go along with something that I've always wondered about us church folks. And um, I'll, I will make my comments brief and then we're going to pray. But so often I've observed in the life of God's people, especially here in the West, there's just this lackadaisical approach to our walk with the Lord, a lackadaisical approach to, to worship, to church attendance, to Bible reading, to prayer. And it's just Ah, it's just, why don't we have more hunger and passion than that, that uh, we would elevate Netflix above our time in the Word of God, that we would elevate our favorite TV show above time in prayer, that it would elevate so many of the world's trinkets. You know, many years ago, the artist Stephen Curtis Chapman had a song um, that uh, said, Behold His Glory, or something like that. And it made a comparison of himself um, eating candy in the middle of a five-course banquet. And it made a comparison of himself, um, how was that? Um, um, playing Game Boy in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Do you remember that song, some of you? And so I think that was just a great comparison about what are we doing? What are we doing with this idolatrous attitude that we would, so to speak, look, be looking down playing Game Boy in the middle of the Grand Canyon, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, or be eating jelly beans in the middle of a five-course meal? That, that's, what, that's what idolatry is like. It's like you're putting these trinkets, these little bitty things above the grandeur of God. And what, that's gonna, what is that going to do for you? 
Very little, if anything, well, nothing. It's a, it's, an, it's an affront to God's greatness and holiness. So I think this is a, a, a topic that we should really think about. How are we living our lives? What are we prioritizing? Because we may not be literally bowing down to an, a carved idol and worshiping it, but there's some other things in life that we can be worshiping, elevating above God. And we may not call it worship. We may not call it, well, I'm not bowing down and, and offering you know, worship to that. But anything that gets in the way of your commitment to the Lord can be idolatrous. So that's why I think this is such an important topic. So Brent, I thank you for such a good teaching this morning. Thank you very much. You get anything out of that? Yeah, praise the Lord. Stand with me if you will.